We're continuing our study tonight, so far only in the book of Genesis, on Christophanies and uh, what we're dealing with here. And again, I'm using a, a definition of Christophanies that is I'll take responsibility for the definition. And even in the, uh, the choice of which events to identify as Christophanies, I'm not really following anyone's list. Uh, this is my own list for my own studies. So uh, there, there are one or two, as I mentioned in a previous study, that are borderline. It's possible that it's just the presence of the Lord and not an actual Christophany. Uh, if you have any questions or concerns about which events I've chosen to identify as a Christophany, you can certainly come and let me know. I'll be glad to talk to you about it. But here's our working definition um, that I'm applying to all of these events that we're studying. So in a Christophany, the Lord appeared, and all of these, of course, took place in the Old Testament. The Lord appeared in one location in an actual visible, definite way. They are not permanent or lasting appearances, but temporary to that moment of history. Christophanies are not an incarnation, but a presentation. So the Lord appeared in these uh, Christophanies as either a human or as an angel, a specific and special category of angel, the angel of the Lord, but did not in these appearances become either human or angel so the Lord temporarily took the form, but not the nature, not the nature of a human being or the nature of an angel. All right, so we are working our way through Genesis. So we're going to for sure finish the Christophanies in Genesis tonight. And if we have time, we'll start uh, the ones, and there are several excellent ones in the book of Exodus as well. But we'll just see, I've prepared an, probably more tonight than we'll have time for uh, we'll just see how far we get. The first one is in Genesis chapter 31, and this is in relationship to Jacob's life story. Uh, we'll just read a few verses starting in verse 10, and I'll, I'll kind of briefly fill us in uh, after I read these verses to the context of what's going on and how this Christophany fits into that event. So Genesis 31.10, In the breeding season of the flock... I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out of this land and return to the land of your kindred. So the, the background briefly is that Jacob had left the promised land, the land that had been promised to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. And he had gone down to live with Laban, who was a relative, and he had, of course, married the daughters of Laban. And the Lord blessed him there with um, a multiplication of his flocks. But Laban had attempted um, in a, um, an unethical way to take advantage of his relationship with Jacob. And he was doing so for the purpose of gaining some financial um, benefit from Jacob that didn't actually belong to Laban. So in this situation, when it was during the mating season, uh, Jacob falls asleep and he has a dream, a dream that we're meant to read and interpret as what I've called in other studies, a spiritual dream. And of course, in this spiritual dream, he he sees an angel, and it's identified in verse 11 as the angel of God. This is that special angel who in most cases in the Old Testament is identified as the angel of the Lord. In this case, and one or two others, he's identified as the angel of God. And the angel of God speaks to him and uh, gives, him some, gives him some encouragement about what's happening with his flocks. And then um, what he essentially does is he assures Jacob that he's watching out for him 
And the point of the assurance is that the Lord is not going to allow Jacob to be taken advantage of by Laban. So um, how do we understand, other than just the phrase, the angel of God uh, appeared to him in the dream, or he saw in the dream the angel of God, how are we to interpret this as the Lord himself, rather than simply an angel appearing in the context of a dream? Because there are a couple of cases elsewhere in Scripture, probably the most famous one being the Lord sent an angel to speak to um, Joseph, the, uh, the, uh, the husband of Mary in regards to the birth of Jesus, and an angel of the Lord, but not the angel of the Lord, spoke to him in a dream. So it could be just an angel, except for these uh, specific phrases where he says to him, um, Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. So clearly the angel here is speaking as if he is the Lord himself, as if he is God himself. And I think we are meant to read this as an appearance of the Lord to him in this dream. Now, how does the Lord present himself in this particular appearance to Jacob. This is an appearance that only happens to one single individual. And it happens to him in the context of a dream. So clearly, Jacob is the only person that experiences it, the only person that sees what's going on. And here the Lord, I believe, presents himself as the one who sees everything that's happening in the life of one of his covenant people. Jacob being, of course, the most important covenant person on the face of the earth at this moment in history. And not just the one who sees, but the one who is working on Jacob's behalf. He is restoring in this circumstance through the the methodology of the mating of the flocks and the agreement that both Jacob and Laban had as to how they would divide the flocks based upon the coat how the, 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 uh, the flocks came out, how, what their appearance was. Certain ones would be allocated to Jacob, certain ones would be allocated to Laban. Laban made that agreement thinking to himself that, all right, I'm going to gain advantage here in this situation. But the Lord flipped the script, reversed the circumstance, and caused the ones that were to be allocated to Jacob to be the, uh, the more numerous And as a result, he blesses him. So the presentation is the Lord is the one who sees and the one who watches out for the interests of his people. And the purpose, I I think here in terms of this experience that he gave to Jacob was this is a faith building appearance. This is the Lord um, encouraging the heart of Jacob that you can trust me, you can believe in me. Uh, The Lord even refers to a previous experience that Jacob had in Bethel where he built a pillar and he made a vow to the Lord. And essentially in that vow, what Jacob said, if you, look, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to follow you if you will watch over me and keep me and protect me all along my way in life. And here the Lord is gracious to reveal to Jacob that he's doing exactly that, that the Lord is faithful to his covenant promises to his people. And in doing so, I believe he's building a stronger faith in the heart of Jacob. This is super important for Jacob because we have to remember the the long-term or the big-picture context of Jacob's life. How did Jacob start in life? And it's based upon his, his name, his first name, Jacob, before the Lord changed his name. As Jacob, he's a, a manipulator. The word literally refers to someone who, who grabs hold of circumstances in life to gain advantage over others around them. And here what the Lord is training Jacob's heart to do is don't be a manipulator. Don't try to control the circumstances of your life the way Laban is. Pull back, look to me, lean on me, trust in me, and I will watch out for your best interests. And that's exactly what the Lord does. All right, let's look at the next one here in chapter 32. And this is also a Jacob specific Christophany. And this is maybe one of the most famous and well-known of all the Christophanies. And uh, back when uh, David was teaching us on the life of Joseph, um, he did cover this chapter and did an excellent study on this. But let's revisit it starting chapter 32, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone 
This is at night, of course. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. This is the man, not Jacob, saying, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. All right, so in this appearance, and and we are dividing these appearances into appearances as a man and appearances as an angel. And the last one we saw was clearly an appearance of an angel. It even tells us that in this case, uh, the Lord appears to Jacob in the presentation or the form of a man. As far as Jacob is concerned, and, and it's just interesting to me how the story is told. There's clearly some details that are left out of the story. Um, it doesn't ruin the story in any sense, but it does make the story a little bit more mysterious. Um, the circumstance is, looking at the very first uh, couple of verses before I started reading, look at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Next thing we see is, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So the situation was, Jacob was about to encounter his grieved, his aggrieved brother Esau. He had offended Esau years before by essentially stealing Esau's place of significance in the covenant family. And even though it was the Lord's purpose for Jacob to to gain that place in the family, he went about it in a manipulative, deceptive way, rather than simply trusting the Lord to transfer that place from Esau to himself. And in doing so, he ruined his relationship with Esau. And ever since then, as far as Jacob is concerned, Esau has it out for him, And he is under the impression that the next time he meets Esau, it could be the end of his life, that Esau may be coming in order to kill him. And so in this circumstance, as he's, he knows he's heading for this meeting with Esau, and he sends his family ahead of him in the direction that he's traveling, which is in itself, in and of itself, a comment on at this moment in time, the struggle that Jacob's having in faith because what he's doing is he's using his own family as human shields for himself. He's hoping that Esau will encounter his family first and be merciful and gracious and compassionate toward his family and that then by the time he gets to Jacob that he'll always he'll already be in a, a mood that will be merciful and gracious to him. But he has no guarantees that Esau is not going to slaughter his entire family. And he takes the risk of sending his family out to meet Esau first. And in this, he's left alone. And then the very next thing that's said, with no story in between, and I'm talking about uh, in between these two sentences in verse 24, Jacob was left alone, period, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, this is just an interesting description to me because we're talking about out in the middle of nowhere. We're talking about not in the middle of town where you might encounter someone and have to defend yourself. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He's left alone, but suddenly he's not alone. And there's no conversation yet between Jacob and this man that suddenly appears. 
a man suddenly appears in front of him, and we don't know whether the man initiates the wrestling match or whether Jacob initiates the wrestling match. But I think, and I would tend to read it this way, I think it's the man that initiates the wrestling match because it says, and a man wrestled with him versus it could have been described as, and Jacob wrestled with the man. Now, Jacob does participate in the match. He does wrestle, and he wrestles literally all night long. And there's very little conversation that takes place in this long, draining wrestling match. And what we discover as we're reading through the story is that apparently this is not just any ordinary man. Um, He asks Jacob a question. And the question he asks him is, tell me your name. It's kind of like an awkward introduction, right? So normally when you go to introduce yourself to people in our culture, you step forward, you extend your hand, and you say, you know, my name's so-and-so. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Instead, they've already been wrestling. And now in the middle of the wrestling match, there's like a pause in the match. And the man asks Jacob, what is your name? Not because the man doesn't know his name, but the man has an intention in terms of how Jacob's name characterizes who he is at a core level. So Jacob answers truthfully, my name is Jacob. And the the word literally means heel catcher, which is this manipulative identity that goes all the way back to him coming out of his mother's womb with his brother Esau and grabbing hold of the heel of his brother as if there's a competition between them from literal day one in his life in this world. So the man asks, what is your name? And he answered truthfully, my name is Heel Catcher. That's who I am. That's who I've always been. And the man, of course, then changes his name, which in, in spiritual understanding of these kinds of stories, there's, there's a series of super significant events throughout the Bible of the Lord changing the name of key individuals from one thing to another. And in each case, the change of the name is not just because the Lord prefers the sound of the new name over the sound of the old name, but the new name has a different meaning. And in giving the individual, in this case, Jacob, a new name, which is Israel, he is changing his core identity. He's changing who he actually is from a manipulator to uh, someone who recognizes the the word Israel literally means um, God rules. And it's the idea of someone who in faith recognizes that that God is in charge of the events of life. And it is a, a faith name compared to Jacob, which is not actually a faith name at all. And then as the story unfolds a little bit further. Uh, Jacob then asks the man what his name is. And the man, in a kind of a mysterious way, responds, "Um, why is it that you ask my name? It's kind of an unusual way to respond to an introduction opportunity. But it essentially means you should have recognized me by now. You should know who you're dealing with by this point You know, we don't know how many hours into the wrestling match we are here at this point. But in this circumstance, the Lord is telling Jacob, you should have discerned who it is that you're wrestling with at this point. And um, then he speaks a word of commendation for him about his effort to strive with both God and men and prevail in his efforts to do so. And... Then Jacob responds at the end of the whole experience in verse 30 by saying, I have seen God face to face. And there's only two ways we can interpret that. One is either Jacob is completely exaggerating and that's not at all what's happened or that's exactly what has happened and he's rightly describing and identifying the true nature of his spiritual experience. And the one that he had been wrestling with then was the Lord of the covenant himself. And then finally, at the end of the night, uh, the Lord touches his hip socket um, in in an intention to permanently uh, maim Jacob's ability to walk uh, in this world. And from this point forward, Jacob leans on a staff in order to just navigate through this world 
all of that being highly symbolic of he's no longer leaning on his own natural resources, his own strength, his own abilities, his own wits. Now he's leaning on the Lord. So he's been transformed from a man who is leaning on himself to a man who is now leaning on God. So in this, of course, what is the presentation? I think we can rightly identify the Lord is a wrestler. One of the maybe more unexpected identities that we would um, look to see in the Lord's revelations. But he, he reveals himself as a wrestler, and specifically a wrestler with his covenant people. And then the purpose, the Lord in this wrestling match is training Jacob uh, to, in humility, lean on him rather than himself. And then let me just give you for a link uh, in the prophecy of Hosea, much later in the Old Testament. Let me give you this passage in Hosea chapter 12, verses 2 through 5, which is just a confirmation of how we're reading the story. Hosea 12.2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob. Here, Jacob is not just an individual, but Jacob represents Israel in its manipulative identity and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So there's an interesting detail here that's added by Hosea, prophesying under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and I don't want to dismiss it. So I identified that in the actual experience, Jacob saw the one who he was wrestling with as a man, but now later Hosea identifies that the man was actually an angel, and not just any ordinary angel, but he was the angel of the Lord. All right, let's move on then to the next one now, heading to Genesis 35. One more appearance to Jacob. Actually, we'll have a couple more, but uh, Genesis 35 is our next one. And I'll start reading... In verse 9, God appeared, excuse me, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. That language, God went up from him, is language of ascension. So God... Uh, At the beginning of this interaction in verse 9, God appears to him, and now at the end of the interaction, God goes up from him or ascends back to his place in heaven. And in response, verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So it becomes like a memorial, an altar of worship in the wilderness. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Bethel, of course, uh, means the house of God. All right, so in this circumstance, uh, this is super easy to identify as a Christophany. We have the clear language that God appeared to him again, indicating that he's previously appeared to him, and now this is a a follow-up appearance. And interestingly, uh, God addresses the name issue with Jacob even though he had already addressed it in the event that we just studied in the wrestling match, it was in that wrestling match that God said to him, okay, your name is Jacob, but now I am renaming you as Israel, which will be a, a core 
transformation of Jacob's identity from a self-reliant man to a God-reliant man. So why would the Lord go to all the trouble of appearing to him another time and revisiting the same issue? I think the clear implication, and we don't have time to read all of the interim material from the wrestling match until this event, but if you read all of the material in between, I think what becomes clear and obvious is that in the first appearance, the wrestling match appearance, the Lord declared to Jacob his purpose to transform and to change his core identity. But Jacob's not fully there yet. You know, Jacob has heard the Lord's intention to change who he is, but he's still struggling in the interim events. He's still struggling with his the momentum of years of habit of handling challenging and difficult and fearful circumstances in his life by leaning on his own wits and leaning on his own resources and abilities. And so the Lord appears to him a second time because it's critically important that Jacob understands how deeply God is intending to change who he actually is. And so in this circumstance, he reminds him of this name change and adds one detail to it that he had not spoken in the prior appearance. And that is, uh, he says in verse 10, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So this is a clear word of declaration by the Lord. Now, I don't want to confuse this, but what is interesting is as you follow out the story of Jacob through the rest of his life in this world, there are times in scripture that he is identified in the story as Israel, even after this second appearance. And then there are times where he is identified as Jacob, which tells me that even on to his latter days, he struggled with really entering fully into this, this uh, sanctifying re-identification that the Lord had purposed for him. But uh, what the Lord does here is he presents himself, and I think this is a, this is a, a significant detail In terms of his presentation, I believe God presents himself to Jacob here as father, as God the father. Now we know from a new covenant, New Testament, thanks to the clear teaching of the Lord Jesus, that God is the father of his covenant people, but it was not a common designation in the Old Testament. Uh, The people of God in the Old Covenant viewed themselves more as servants of God rather than sons and daughters of God. But here I think we are meant to see God as Father, and the reason for that is in Hebrew culture, there was one person in the family that was responsible for the naming of a child, and that was the father. And uh, what the Lord does here for uh, Jacob is he essentially renames him, and by doing so, he is adopting Jacob into the fullness of familial covenant relationship with him, and in doing so, he's letting him know, I am now owning you as my son, as my child, and I have this sanctifying purpose to make you a person that leans on me as ruler over your life rather than you as ruling your own life. The purpose of this particular appearance, I'm calling God establishing Jacob's new identity for his covenant purpose. Meaning in order for Jacob to enter into the fullness of God's purpose for him in latter years, Um, he needs to understand this identity transformation. And the Lord goes to this, uh, what I would consider to be a fairly extreme extent, not just appearing to him one time, but giving him a second appearance in order to really drive that point home to his heart. All right, let's move on. We've got a few chapters ahead of us here. Um, Turn over, if you would, to Genesis 46 to the next Christophany. And this will be our last one in the book of Genesis. Genesis 46. And we're reading just the first few verses of the chapter. So Israel, and here's a case where the man Jacob is now, even in the story, being described as and named as Israel, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. 
and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel. So here's a second time where he's named Israel in the text in, in this event. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, and this is at first glance, it could easily be read past without paying attention to it. I think we're meant to stop and notice it. The text is just called him Israel twice, but when God actually speaks to him, he says this to him twice, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Joseph, of course, being uh, one of the younger, uh, the two young sons of Jacob. So in this situation, we know the background. And again, David took us in detail through this event in his study through Joseph's life. But what's happened is there's a famine in the land where Jacob lives. And um, the Lord wants to preserve his covenant people alive in the midst of the famine. And he has a purpose and he's planned it all out to provide for them, not in the promised land where the famine is most severe, but he has planned out to provide for him in Egypt where there will also be famine But the Lord has set up Joseph in a government circumstance and the authority to actually uh, gather food stores so that um, not just the people of Egypt, but the covenant people can be sustained through the famine. Now, why the name variation in this experience? He, He takes his journey. He's heading in the right direction. The direction he's going now is he's going down toward Egypt, but he's not there yet. And in the midst of his journey, God speaks to him in visions of the night. So one night, God gives him a spiritual experience. And as God speaks to him, he speaks in a doubling of his name. And we've talked about this before. Whenever God speaks someone's name twice in a row, it's it's like a, a parental, a strong parental attention getter. Just like if you said to your own child, let's say your child's name was, was Joe, and you said to them, Joe, Joe, the doubling of the name is to ensure that you have their full heart's attention. And in this case, the Lord gets his attention, but why does the Lord call him Jacob when even in the account of the story, he's already transitioning into a new identity as Israel? I think the explanation is what the Lord says to him in uh, verse 3. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. So when the Lord says to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, what does that imply about what Jacob's current mindset and heart perspective is? He was obeying the Lord, which is the reason why the story calls him Israel. He was obeying the Lord, but he was obeying the Lord apparently hesitantly and with trepidation. He was not wholehearted in his uh, intention to journey down to Egypt. He had, he had, he was kind of like, and we've all had this experience, you know, being aware that the Lord has called us to some specific point of obedience, and we're moving in the direction of obedience, but we're dragging our feet behind us, uh, kind of uh, slowing down our progress toward where the Lord wants us to be. And that's, I think, what's going on here. So he is Israel already, but he's also still too much Jacob. And so the Lord chooses to uh, speak to him in this appearance and make clear that um, he's no longer to be Jacob, no longer to be the fearful one, no longer to be the one who is, again, in control and in charge of his life situation. But simply, this is, this is a circumstance where I have a plan, I have a purpose, I want you to just trust me, and I want you to obey me, and I want you to go down to Egypt. And then the Lord gives him a strong word of encouragement, which is, um, I'm going to, when you get to Egypt, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And not only that, but your life is going to end well, because your son, Joseph, your restored son, your long lost and dearly beloved son is going to close your eyes, meaning that you'll die a good death in right relationship with your son, Joseph. 
Now, um, how does the Lord, um, how does the Lord present him that, himself in this circumstance? I believe the presentation of the Lord here is that the Lord is a companion to his people when we most need his company and not just need his company, but the awareness of his company. Because the Lord says to him, uh, verse four, this strong, encouraging word, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So the Lord has essentially encouraged him with a, a prophetic description that he's going to be with Jacob through the entire duration of his journey. He's going he's to be with him in the journey to Egypt. He's going to be with him throughout the duration of the time that he's in Egypt. And he's going to be with him as he brings him back up out of Egypt. And of course, the bringing him back up was not in life, but in death. Because uh, you remember the story of how um, Jacob died there in Egypt. But the Lord, through Joseph, uh, brought the bones of Jacob back to be buried in the promised land. So the Lord as companion when we most need the awareness and the encouragement of the Lord's companionship. And then the purpose of this particular um, Christophany, I believe, is that God is strengthening Jacob's heart for the move. The move is essential to the fulfillment of the Lord's plan and purpose. The Lord's got this all mapped out, but Jacob doesn't know all the details of why he needs to go to Egypt. All the Lord has essentially told him is that your son is there and food is there. He doesn't know all the other details about why the Lord is taking him to Egypt and and how long the children of Israel are going to be there in Egypt. It's going to be 400 years that they'll be in Egypt, but how the Lord has this great sovereign saving purpose for them 400 years down the line. But the Lord is gracious to strengthen Jacob's heart when he most needs the strength of true faith to believe in the Lord's purpose, even if he doesn't understand all the details of it. All right, that finishes our study in the Christophanies in Genesis. I think we've got time to just dive into one, possibly two of the Christophanies in Exodus. So let's go to the first one. Uh, This one, along with the wrestling one in Genesis, this is maybe one of the most famous of all the Christophanies. This is the first Christophany that Moses ever experiences. And he's going to experience in his great purpose as a prophet of God, Moses is going to experience a number of Christophanies in Exodus. But this first one is especially significant. This is the event that we refer to as the burning bush appearance. Let's read from verse 1 of chapter 3 of Exodus. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Just brief context, uh, Horeb, the mountain of God, is the same mountain that will later be identified in Exodus um, as Mount Sinai. And it will be the mountain that later, won't happen here and now, but later Moses will go to the the summit of that mountain. He'll enter into the the glory cloud of the Lord's presence and he'll, he'll have a direct interaction with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And he will receive the Ten Commandments and he will receive the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle. But here at this point, Uh, Moses is simply a shepherd at this point. He has, at at this moment, he is now about 80 years old. And uh, he has been 40 years living in the wilderness of Midian. And um, he's just settled into the life of a shepherd. And he's kind of given up any plans and purposes that he had as a younger man, a man at the age of 40, thinking that he was going to be the great deliverer of God's enslaved people in Egypt. Uh, He tries to deliver them. He murders one of the abusive slave masters, uh, but then regrets it after he does it, tries to hide it. It all comes out. His life is at, at stake and at issue, and so he flees to Midian, where he 
he meets Jethro and his family and ends up marrying one of the daughters of Jethro. But he's just been living as a shepherd now on the backside of the wilderness for these last 40 years. And then, verse 2, something happens and it changes the rest of his life, going to change the next 40 years and change it in a, in a significant and great way. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, this is Moses, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, because he doesn't understand yet what's going on, it's just a, a desert phenomenon in his mind at this point. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Now, what we're meant to understand by that is that in some sense, God is in the bush. Now, does this mean that God temporarily incarnated as a bush? Obviously not. God is not a bush. He never was a bush, never will be a bush. But he is in the bush in the sense that there is this flame of fire that is burning the bush without actually consuming the bush. It wasn't in those circumstances an amazing thing to see a bush burning in the wilderness. Um, A bush, you know, if it was struck by lightning, would certainly catch fire and burn up. Maybe Moses has seen something like this before. What's unusual about this experience is the bush was burning, as it says at the end of verse 2, yet it was not consumed. So Moses turns aside to see what's going on. What's so amazing and unusual about this bush that's, not, that's burning without being consumed? God sees that he turns aside and God calls to him out of the bush. And here again is the doubling of the name of the person that God is addressing. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, now this is the Lord speaking. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you were standing is holy ground and he said i am the god of your father the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob and moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at god then the lord said i have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters i know their sufferings and i've come down to deliver them and that Verse 8, key language there in verse 8. I have come down. Obviously, that implies that he was, prior to this moment, up. So we're talking about the Lord, in some sense, leaving the confines of heaven and coming down to earth in this appearance, in this angelic Christophany. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All right, so we have the, the clear description that this is the angel of the Lord that's appearing to him. The angel of the Lord is not appearing to him in the bush, The angel of the Lord is appearing to him in the flame that was burning the bush. So it's an important distinction. As I said, it's not that the Lord became a bush. Even symbolically, the Lord is in the flame, which is localized for the Lord's revealing purposes. The flame is localized in the bush, meaning it's not just the whole desert landscape is burning. Just this one bush is burning. But what's especially significant about it is that it's burning yet it was not consumed. So what are we meant to understand from this? And there's different, lots of good efforts to try to make sense of this specific way that the Lord appears to Moses in this situation. Um, My conclusion is that this is a message to Moses. It ultimately extends to all of the covenant people, both old and new covenant, but really this is a message from Moses in his circumstance as God is now calling him to this special assignment. And the message is this. There's a flame, which is the visible presence of the Lord on earth. And there's a bush, which is just 
ordinary. There's nothing special about the bush. So in this circumstance, the flame represents the Lord himself, the Lord's presence, the Lord's power. And the bush represents what, do you think? I think the bush represents Moses. Now, of course, Moses is representative of all of the covenant people of the Lord. So you can, you can broaden this to extend all the way to understanding Israel and the role of the bush. And even beyond that, in a new covenant application, it includes those of us who are now in covenant relationship with the Lord. We are the bush. But really, this is first and foremost a message to Moses, a revelation to Moses. Moses is the bush and the Lord is the flame. So that helps us to understand the unique interaction between the flame and the bush. The Lord could have appeared in the form of a a heavenly holy fire that actually burned and actually consumed the bush. And we have passages, for instance... uh, Keep your place here. Look over for a moment toward the end of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12. And this is actually speaking of a circumstance where God had revealed himself to Moses and the children of Israel. But this is the later appearance at Mount Sinai. But in verse 28 of Hebrews 12, Paul writes... Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, what's unique and interesting to me about this particular appearance, and in terms of identifying the presentation, how does the Lord present himself to Moses in this circumstance? He is a fire, a flame of fire, but in this case... The Lord reveals himself to Moses as an unconsuming fire. Later at Sinai, he reveals himself as a consuming fire. So is that contradictory? I mean, only in the sense that the Lord has different purposes for how he makes himself known to his people at different times, different contexts. But it's not ultimately contradictory as if the Lord can only be one thing or the other thing. He can't be both things at the same time. So later at the Sinai, and we'll... We'll get into this when we eventually get there in our study. Later at the Sinai appearance, the Lord makes himself or reveals himself to his people, makes himself known as a consuming fire. What's the point of the Lord showing that he's a consuming fire? There, it's a sanctifying thing that happens where the Lord, as we draw close to him and as we interact with his holy, fiery presence, which is a glory fire, not a natural physical fire, that that fire as we encounter it cleanses us or purifies us by burning away things within our heart that are not compatible with the Lord's glorious and holy nature. However, in this case, the Lord wanted Moses, and I think it's more than anything else, just by way of strong encouragement, because Moses has a huge task ahead of him. And the Lord is calling him to a gigantic 40-year-long assignment, placing on his shoulders spiritual responsibilities that no man in the history of the world up until Moses had ever borne. Maybe the closest case would be Noah um, having to construct the ark. And if that ark doesn't get finished, you know, the the human race is going to cease to exist. That's a pretty big responsibility. But here, Moses has been given the responsibility of leading an entire nation of millions of people out of slavery through a 40-year-long journey in the wilderness with them grumbling and mumbling and complaining every step of the way and shepherding them to the very threshold of the promised land. And the Lord knows that Moses is going to struggle in his calling. Later in the story, There is more than once where Moses essentially throws up his hands and says, this is too too much for me, too much for me to handle. And so here, the Lord gives him a revelation, which is, I think, meant to be deeply encouraging to him about their relationship, meaning that in all of his assignment that's yet ahead of him, the Lord will be revealing himself as a glorious flame of fire, but The flame of fire is in the midst of what? The bush. 
And if the bush at all represents Moses in just the natural ordinariness of his humanity, his fallen human nature, then the Lord is showing that the work is going to be accomplished not by how great the bush is, but how great the flame in the midst of the bush is, and that he does not need to fear or be worried or be concerned concerned that somehow in the carrying out of God's assignment for his life, that he's going to be consumed by that task and that responsibility. You know, we still talk, I mean, it's somewhat of a cultural thing, but it's, there's a, a reality to this experience that people can have. And even in, even in spiritual ministry, we talk about um, the experience of burnout. How many of you have ever heard about pastors, for instance, experiencing pastoral burnout over years of faithful ministry service? where they just reach an end of their personal resources and they say, I can't go on doing this job. It's just too much. I just, you know, I just want to break. I want, I want to disconnect from the responsibility. I think what the Lord is doing is he's safeguarding the heart of Moses against any possibility of future burnout by showing him the task is going to be accomplished not by the bush, but by the flame. And as you are filled with this flame and as this flame is is burning in its glorious purpose. Um, the flame is not going to harm the bush. The, bur- the bush will remain intact and unharmed and not consumed by the power that's in the actual flame. All right. Um, I think we will stop with that one. And uh, Lord willing, we will pick up next time. We've still got a bunch of really good ones in Exodus ahead of us. Uh, That first one in chapter 3 just gives us a kind of a a head start in the Exodus Christophanies. But uh, I've got a full study uh, next time, Lord willing, uh, prepared for our Exodus, uh, all the remaining of the Exodus Christophanies that are ahead of us. So God bless you all tonight. Thanks for coming.